I've got a couple of extra areas we can go to because, again, the new focus of the ABF, we're just going to be a little bit more focused on actually sticking with the topic covered in this morning's message or last week. Um, and I will try to bring every Sunday some extra material to go over. But that said, do we have you, – you've lost your job as mic guy. You were late. Yeah, the early bird gets the microphone. Yeah, don't, don't Do not. Those are the brand new – Jason saw you do that. He'd be chasing you right now. No, no. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell him. I'll tell Jay. Okay. Okay. Any uh, any questions from this morning? First off, any blanks missed? I th- Usually, I get the people who are upset. C two. His purpose with these two disciples is complete. His purpose is complete. Um, other, next, any other questions? Now I got the blanks covered. Bob. I don't, I don't have a question exactly, but I guess I'd want you to comment on it. We're going through the book of Ruth and talking about redemption mm. a lot. And it's interesting to me that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't say we were hoping that he was going to be the king. We were hoping that he was going to control Israel or overthrow the Romans. They said they were hoping that he would redeem Israel. So um, it seems really ironic that that's exactly what Jesus talked about, the price he was going to pay, right. that the Christ must suffer these things. I um, wonder if you might comment on that. Absolutely. The passage is dripping with irony, right? So Jesus asks them what they're talking about. Are you the only one who doesn't know what's been going on? No, actually, he's the only one who does know what's been going on. And then it ends with them saying, we went to the tomb, but him they did not see as he's looking at Jesus. I mean, there's huge irony going on. For those of you who aren't sure, irony is the opposite of wrinkly. Um, Okay. Sorry. Okay. it just goes downhill from here, folks. Sorry. Uh, but, no, the, the, the phrase a redeemer. Um, a redeemer will come out of Zion. I, I, I do think, just from everything else going on, that they did connect that still with some restoration of Israel. Words, I don't, I'm not, text isn't explicit. I tend to think, based on their confusion and what was happening just before we went to Jerusalem, they thought the kingdom was going to appear. The redemption of Israel does involve, I mean, it does ultimately involve Israel's um, restoration geopolitically. I think that's the aspect they're primarily looking at. Um, but no, they're looking for a redeemer. And, and part of the threads we looked at two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago? We did the travel through the Old Testament. And granted, I only touched on a handful of texts. And there are scads more that Jesus, we don't know which text he went to. And Ruth is one of them. That picture of, of Ruth, you are a redeemer. I think, I think that's a connection you're making, right? Ruth goes to Boaz and says, you are a redeemer. Um, and Ruth is redeemed by Boaz as he takes her as his wife, and Messianic line goes through that. Um, ab- there's all sorts of wonderful pictures of the gospel in the Old Testament, that being one of them. Yeah, is that, I mean, is there more you were looking for me to go on to, or is that? Oh, okay, cool. Next. Oh, we got someone in the back. 
Okay. Allison. Uh, could you expand on the importance of hospitality and Christian fellowship in regard to uh, evangelism and edification? You talked about Jesus sitting and breaking bread and the number of times that he used that. I, I'm going to give you a short answer now because I'm, I'm planning a couple of messages. When we get done with Luke in about two or three weeks, I'm planning a couple of, as, as Dave suggested, sort of summary messages. And one of the ones that I want to do is track the importance of table fellowship through Luke. Um, so in one sense, I plan to give you a much better answer to that in a few weeks. And so I want to do a brief one now. But you can actually do a bigger study on table fellowship just throughout the Bible. Um, meals are primarily, when you eat together, it's a, it, it, it presupposes and is a demonstration of peace and, and commonality. So in the Old Testament, when, when um, Jacob makes a covenant with someone or he makes an agreement with Laban, they have a meal to celebrate this. And you see that regularly, that these meals, because what we're doing, we're sitting at the same table. We're coming together as equals in a sense. Which is why in Luke, the uh, Pharisees are so mad because Jesus is receiving and eating with sinners and tax collectors. What's he saying by doing that? That's why in the New Testament, it becomes a big deal whether the, whether the Jewish Christians will eat with Gentiles. Which ultimately is why in 1 Corinthians 5, when you deal with discipline and, and a believer caught in the sin, not to even eat with such a one. It's like you, you're not receiving this one in, in peace. So in Luke's gospel, now back to Luke, um, we've got Jesus is willing to eat with, he's eating with everybody. He's eating with Pharisees. He's eating with Simon the Pharisee. Remember when the woman comes in and washes his hair? And so who Jesus is eating with, and even his greeting to the uh, disciples at the end of 24, peace, right? Jesus is coming, declaring peace, and he's willing to sit down and sup and eat. Go to Revelation 3, um, there's, I, I almost mentioned this last week, but I decided not to. Uh, this is probably one of, these, one of these pastor's pens. I'm going to write a list of the most misunderstood or misquoted Bible verses, and Revelation 3 is easily one of them. Um, in Revelation 3, we get um, verse... Hold on, where is it? Yeah, 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And people love to associate that with evangelism, except that's written to a church, right? That's a church. It may or may not be an accurate picture of evangelism. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying that's not what that's talking about. Jesus is talking to a church that's become proud, self-confident, the latest in church. They think they're rich. They think they're wealthy. They think they're wise, and they're naked, blind, and poor. And Jesus says, hey, somehow in all of this, I'm outside. <laughs> and if you let me back in, I'll come back in, and I'll have fellowship with you. That's what he's saying to a church. That's, that's what's going on there. But again, the picture of table fellowship and even communion as a picture of table fellowship with God. You could even make a strong argument, and, and I've got an author who does, that the entire sacrificial system is, in a sense, establishing the foundation and the basis of table fellowship with God. So God doesn't eat, but the, the smoke goes up as a pleasing aroma. So here's man and God coming, as it were, to a meal table, and that's why all these regulations, if you're going to go have dinner with God, it's a black tie affair, as it were. Um, 
that, that that's one way you could view that. So, so Moses would go to the tent of meeting and he'd offer a sacrifice and God would meet with them face to face. All of that then symbolizes in our meal that Jesus takes this meal and now this meal is a picture of our acceptance. We're coming and we're feeding on Christ. Not literally, the bread and the, the cup are not Jesus, but they symbolize our feeding and our communion with him. And even the meal itself is a picture of our communion with each other. So, yeah, meals are a big deal. Meals and hospitality and fellowship are a big deal in the New Testament. Um, was there more you wanted me to go on, or, or is that okay for a starter? There's going to be like a good 45-minute message coming in a few weeks on this. So, um, anyone want to add to that? Oh, Bridget. Um, in the passage where it talks about not coming to communion with having an offense, or I don't really remember it, so you might have to read it. Sure. But um, what specifically is that talking about as far as like when you were kind of saying in your parallel relationship with God? Sure. I kind of wonder sometimes. Like, Let's what? go to 1 Corinthians 10, which is where we're looking at. So what I was saying this morning around the communion, um, when, I was, when we were transitioning to communion, is the Lord's table, communion, pictures, okay, it's a sign. And signs are useful in what they signify. They're, pardon the pun, significant. They're significant insofar as they picture things. And the Lord's table pictures a number of things. It pictures some vertical realities. In other words, the symbolism of the Lord's table says some things about God and about Jesus and our relationship to him. Those are the vertical things. But it also says some horizontal things. And what I was saying was, it was actually the horizontal things that were the reason why God was disciplining the church. In other words, their partaking of the Lord's table was not fundamentally black. When I say blaspheming, I'm, what I'm saying is this. The sign is not picturing the reality. What they're, the, what they're doing, the way they're doing the sign warps the sign. The sign's supposed to picture their unity. They're taking it in such a way that demonstrates their lack of unity. So Paul describes that in, I think, 10 or 11. Hold on. Um, It's 11, I believe. 17? Yeah. Yeah. In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, pause. That's where I get that. That's, that would be one of my biblical basis for saying we are the church. We come together as a church. You don't go to church. You go to be the church. Um, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So on the first hand, some divisions are necessary. Divisions about truth, right? Divisions about people who believe error. Like th- Those are the right types of divisions. When, there's, when the body is sorting itself out and sins being dealt with. But then he goes on to list the bad divisions. Um, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. Another goes hungry. Another gets drunk. So are they, are they taking the Lord's Supper in unison and oneness? No. One guy's like, i got to get started. I can't wait around. Another guy has nothing. I mean, you're celebrating communion with nothing. You got any bread or wine for me? Nope. Okay. And then somebody's getting drunk at the Lord's table. Because what they were doing in the earliest institution, and from what we can understand from the early church, they would actually have a meal. And at some point during the meal... 
they would pause and let's celebrate the Lord's Supper. And they'd take some of the bread and some of the wine and of their meal, and they'd, they'd celebrate that. Um, and so, what then? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you dis- or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. And that's right after, if you turn back to chapter 10, where he declares that part of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper is the oneness of the body, right? Um, verse 17 of chapter 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all participate or partake of one bread. So it was those, hor- Paul lists the horizontal realities that they're breaking. So, so practical um, implications would be, can we say in reality, we're at peace with one another and we're unified? And if you know in your heart there's unresolved conflict or issues, I think it would be a good thing to pause or, um, Serena's, is Serena here? No. She, yeah, you are. Your dad would like stop before communion and tell people, hey, go, go, if you got to go talk to somebody, go talk to, her dad's a pastor. Um, <clears throat> we haven't done that here yet, but you can, you can uh, pause, defer, go talk to someone if you need to, but um, we, we should, we, the, the, the sign of us taking communion together is saying, we're unified, we're one, we're of one mind, we're at peace with one another. If that's not the reality, let's not pretend it is and, blot, and twist the sign. That's, that's, I think, the point. Does that answer your question? So I just think it's interesting that we, usually the horizontal elements of communion get overlooked. Those are the very ones that God's disciplining the church for. So um, I'm, I'm not aware from doing that in our body. I've, It'd be an interesting diagnosis from a doctor. What's wrong with me? Have you been taking communion flippantly lately? That's what's going on here. People is dead and sick. So, yeah. Other questions? Oh, we got a follow-up. Yeah. Oh. Um, and so then with the horizontal, um, is it the kind of thing where the Holy Spirit will reveal to you if there's something particular? Because like you said... All of us, you know, are going to fall short, and yeah. there's going to be areas of our life where yes. we aren't doing what we should be. But no, no, and I believe, and we have models of that, right? So go to Psalm one thirty nine or or nineteen. Let's go to one thirty nine. Um, but we have a, a, both at least nineteen and one thirty nine both pattern this that the psalmist, as he considers God's holiness, is moved. Uh oh, I'm not. Um, so one thirty nine is a wonderful psalm, a reflection on God's um, attributes, specifically his omniscience, his omnipresence, his um, sovereignty. And so he goes through, starting off in verse 1, and there's a subtle shift from verse 1 to the end of the psalm. The psalm ends and begins very similarly. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then verse uh, 23, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. And the subtle shift between verse 1 and 23, is one's a statement of fact, you have. 23 is an invitation, please search me. And what you see happening is in the psalmist spirit, as he's thinking about God's omniscience, the first six verses contemplate God's, this is, sorry, I, we will eventually get to the question you asked, but there's so much going on in Psalm 139, I can't not mention it. Theology is meant to be very, very, very practical. And so, he takes a theological concept, God knows everything, 
And then he starts applying it to himself. God knows everything about me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high I cannot attain. And then he focuses on God's omnipresence. God's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go where God isn't. But he makes it very personal. There's nowhere I can go. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, and he keeps going through. And then he talks about God's utter control. Um, verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together. So he's not simply saying God is in control, feeding the birds, growing the grass. God is, was growing me, knitting me together in my mother's womb. He's making all these theological statements and making them incredibly personal which leads then to his, his praise in verse 17. How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they'd be more than the sand. I awake, I'm still with you. And then people get surprised with a sudden shift in 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. But I think the logic is he's so marveling, worshiping, rejoicing in who God is to him that now his response is, get rid of all your enemies, um, which then leads to the close, because I think the final point, and this, this finally we get to your question, Bridget, but wait a second, don't I do things that act like God's enemy at times? And so he asks, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist recognized, I may not know about something, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3. My conscience doesn't accuse me, but that doesn't make me innocent. Psalm 19 is the same sort of request. Um, I'll just read the last verses. Um, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And let the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. So I think it's good periodically to say, Lord, is there something that's not on my radar that I'm not aware of? I, I do truly believe these are prayers God always answers. I don't believe God's ever, nowhere in scripture do I ever see a person genuinely wanting to please God, genuinely. And the problem is God's being coy or saying, well, you have to figure it out for yourself or the, 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 the message doesn't quite communicate. I never see that ever. So I, I, given that we're given that model in the Psalms to pray, and given God's desire for his people to, to please, what parent, when the child is saying, Mom, Dad, I want to, to obey, I want to please you, what do you want me to do? What parent's like, yeah, if you have to ask, then I can't tell you. You ought to know. That's not, no, no parent does that. And I don't think our Heavenly Father does that. So... I think if we pause, we're told to pause. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we ought to examine ourselves. Lord, is there something I need to deal with? And if something clear doesn't come to your mind, I would move on and not chase your tail. I mean, there's two dangers here. You can so ignore it that you do nothing. The other danger would be to just chase your tail. Like, what if, what if I've forgotten something? I, maybe I shouldn't take communion this morning because I don't want to get sick and die. I, you can you can you can take it too cavalierly, and you can chase your tail. I I think the solution would be kind of even what we try to model here. Let's take a moment and examine ourselves. Okay.
Now let's move forward. That, that's at least the, the, what the pattern we're trying to set here, what I'm trying to do with the twofold pause. Um, okay. Oh, got a question up here with Elsa. I've been um, reading the Institutes of um, Calvin and the whole book on prayer. Mm. I'm not through it yet, but to just what you said, when his whole thing is when you pray, you need to be humble because mm. we all try and justify ourselves, right? And sincere in your right. prayers because God knows your heart. You can't lie to him. So I think if you pray humbly and sincerely, he will reveal to you the problems. Yes. Uh, and, and let me go a little further with what I'm trying to get at. There was a really, really popular book but a decade or two ago called The Prayer of Jabez. And I'm not, my goal is not to attack The Prayer of Jabez, but I do want to attack what that, the popularity of that book revealed is our desire that we want to believe that the reason we're struggling with sin, the reason things aren't going the way we should go, is because we've missed out on some key secret trick concept. I, I don't think that's the way the Christian life is. Um, I, I, we all want, I think, to believe that, oh, that's why I'm so mediocre in my love of God and pursuit of him. I just haven't been, and, and then the new Christian bestseller comes out, and frequently you can see that's the thing. Like, oh, the problem is your love tank wasn't being filled. Oh, that's why I'm such a bad husband. You know, well, no, that's, that's the message that love languages sells, is that, you know, your love tank wasn't filled because someone wasn't speaking your... No, and I'm not trying to trash that book either. That, that, that book's first main point's great. It's in the first chapter. Don't assume the way you experience love is the way other people experience love. And then his whole model of sanctification is godless. I mean, sorry. Anyway, that's another message from another time. But then you can see these next things, and then like while the heart comes out, like, oh, the reason why I'm such a pathetic husband and father is because my spirit's wounded, because I've been working in a cubicle. And... The, that's his model. No, no, I'm not trying, and I might be stepping on toes here, but my point is we want to believe, we want to hear the good news, the, the gospel, the good news to us, that it's not your fault. You've missed out on some key concept, dynamic, some key um, trick or principle, and that's what, no, no, that, that's not the Christian life and sanctification. Um, was it Lewis? Forget who said it. It wasn't me, Greg. Uh, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left untried. Boom! Barbara Kidder for the win. G.K. Chesterton. No hesitation there. All right. Uh, so no. So any 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 book that and this actually will dovetail into the point I want to go into on the extra point I want to go into. Any book that's going to tell you how to be a better husband, father, Christian, whatever, if its central ingredients are not faith in God, repentance from sin, the, the word of God, Christ's death on the cross, if those are not the key ingredients, it's, it's, it's a sham, okay? If you're going to become a better father or wife or citizen or employee or business owner, and that is not going to be built around confession of sin, trusting in Christ, God's word, if those aren't the key pieces of that, it's a sham. It's just that that's 
tough and it's hard and it takes continual humbling of yourself and it takes continually saying, yeah, on my own, I'm help. I did it again. I messed up. And it takes reading and understanding. And, you know, we want to think, oh, it's boom. I just got to pray this prayer. Oh, I just got to get someone to speak my love language. Oh, I just got to get out in the wilderness and express my masculinity and then everything will be okay. That's no, that is absolute. You're laughing. No, Eldritch's book, that was entirely what the application was. And I'm not saying he might not be on to something about being in a cubicle for 50 hours a week is going to have some negative effects. I'm not saying, I'm just saying his solution didn't have at its center those key pieces. That's the problem. He, he may well be on to something in diagnosing a problem. His solution is insufficient. And so that, that then gets into what I wanted to talk to this morning. I want to shift a little bit just to some of the comments I made this morning about teaching, preaching, reading books, things like that. And I wanted to focus again. Let's go back to 20, Luke 24. And we're going to look at 24 and Acts 17 briefly. Um, and what the point of instruction is, what the point of what we're doing right now is, what the point of a sermon is, um, and how to evaluate the value of the books you're reading, the sermons you're listening to, the things like that. Um, and, I, and I would just lay out, I think the value is a sermon is useful, a teaching is useful, a book is useful if it's causing you to understand the Bible better. Period, full stop. Everything else is unimportant. Is the person incredibly well-spoken? Great if they're helping understand the Bible better. Is the book filled with tons of engaging illustrations and examples? Great, if that helps you understand the Bible better. The the danger is we can become um, distracted and infatuated by those other things and miss out on what matters. And so, you know, you'll hear... I can always tell a lot about a church by what they believe, by what they value, by how they describe their service. You know what I mean? And if the primary thing they're describing is a an thrilling, attention grabbing, uplifting, like where tell me that I'm gonna understand this better. Tell me that you're gonna show me what this means. Um, so G- Jesus, the, the phrase here in uh, verse twenty-seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them. You could take that same word in Greek and render it translated. And it's the concept of bringing meaning across. And it assumes, if you take the interpret concept, it assumes there is a meaning in the original language, and now I'm accurately bringing it across. So that's one picture. If you hear of the term expository preaching, it, the X is to take out, like exodus to get out of Egypt. And to exposit, to take meaning out of and lay it out. The other way they refer to it is in verse um, 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? And again, if anybody could claim the right of take my word for it, I'm just going to tell you what it means. It'd be Jesus, right? Jesus could just say, look, I'm not explaining it to you. It means this. But that's not what he does. He opens the Bible to them. He, he sh- and that, again, the concept is see, see. He's not just telling them what it means. He's showing them what it means. And... That's one of the reasons why um, in our church we, we take such time, because if, if, 
if, we're gonna, if I'm going to do more, if whoever's speaking is going to do more than tell you what it means, but show you why it means, then I got to justify. I got to, to use the, the uh, phrase, I got to show my math, right? You know, and you're doing in school math, it's not enough to show the answer. You got to show how you got the answer, right? Because you shouldn't care what I think unless you know why I think it. I'm not a pope. I'm not, I don't have some magisterial authority to tell you what it means. My goal is let me show you why I think it means what it means. And open it up, right? That takes a bit more time because you can't just say the conclusion. You've got to say how you get there. And that's the model Jesus has. Now go to Acts 17, and that's exactly what Paul is doing. Acts 17. Um, let's pick it up in verse... Um, two, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them. That word translated reasoned um, in the ESV is the same word translated earlier, opened, dia goigo, um, to, to open up, to open wide. Um, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So the model of Jesus on the road to Emmaus is not some anomaly. It's not some messianic prerogative that only Jesus does. The Apostle Paul does the exact same thing in his evangelism. Um, and, and I could show you other examples of the same thing. That the, the goal is getting my mind, my eyes spiritualized to see what is being said and again, that assumes a whole bunch of things about absolute meaning and, and things like that. But that's, that's the value. As, as you evaluate speakers or books or other things, that ultimately is the question of value. If this book, this podcast, this speaker, this sermon helps you understand Scripture better, it's great. If it doesn't, it's not useful. I mean, insofar as you're, you're trying to increase your faith, I mean, it might tell you how to do something else well, cook a pie or something, and that has use. But I mean, as we're looking at spiritual formation and growth as a Christian, it, it ultimately resolves around understanding this. Um, okay, questions on that or thoughts on that? Because I think that's an important point. Um, any questions on that? Everyone's just nodding their head, okay. Um, then let's go to 1 Corinthians. Because there's a danger of getting caught up in personality cults. we got time for this. Okay. So 1 Corinthians. Uh, and the context in 1 Corinthians, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. He, uh, he's probably listening right now, but I won't name him. It's okay. Um, and he was telling me that he, the church he goes to just got a new pastor, and he finds the new pastor boring. And I said, okay, but let me ask some questions. Do you find, no, no, he's a godly man, and I think his teaching is sound. I think what he's saying is accurate and sounds good. Uh, it's just he's not very dynamic for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe some people find him interesting, but to me, he, he's boring. And uh, 
I'll, I'll, I'll switch the spotlight to myself. I'll jump back even further. When I was going to Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, MacArthur would regularly take the summers off, about eight to ten weeks in the summer, for a combination of speaking at conferences, vacation, and working on finishing some books. So for about eight to ten weeks in the late summer, John MacArthur would be out of the pulpit, and one of the other elders would be there. And, and Grace Community Church has got a lot of gifted elders, a lot of gifted expositors and teachers. And this was um, something the Lord convicted me of early on. I'd find myself checking the bulletin to see who was up, deciding whether or not, you know, maybe we could just go, because the way grace would work is they have two services, and you go to a fellowship group. Their fellowship group was bigger than our church. My fellowship group, which was one of the smaller fellowship groups, joint heirs. Some of the fellowship groups were closer to 1,000, but ours is about 250, 300. But joint heirs was my fellowship group, where you'd have a whole other worship service. It was a bit more informal. There'd be some food and some coffee and some donuts. And then there'd be a singing. And then there'd be another sermon. And all the Bible studies and all of the fellowship groups broke. I mean, the small fellowship groups broke out of those big fellowship groups. So I really viewed joint heirs as my church, where my where pastoring relationships was happening. And so there's a temptation to say, let's see you speaking at big church. Because big church, you, you and 5,000 other people would sit down and you'd stand and you'd sing and... MacArthur or somebody would teach. And there was one guy in particular who had a southern accent that would put me to sleep. And I'd check to make sure it wasn't him. And again, I had no complaint on this guy. Godly guy. I won't say his name either because you probably know him. And, um, and I got really convicted reading 1 Corinthians about what I was doing. And so let me try to show you why I wasn't valuing the right things. So there's divisions in Corinthians, right? So, um, and Paul is ultimately going to reveal, despite all the divisions that are going on, the one he's going to narrow down to is between the people that like Paul and his style of ministry and the people who like Apollos. Um, he's going to start off with many more factions, but by the time we get to chapter 3, it's going to be narrowed down to Paul and Apollos. And at least in the case of Paul and Apollos, the difference is about sophistication, and it's about delivery and oratory skills. Apollos, from what we can tell in the book of Acts and his appearance there, is skilled in Greek rhetoric, which is what would be considered in his day what is stylish, what is wise, what is academic, what is powerful, what is cultured. And Paul is going to freely admit he ain't any of that when it comes to speaking. So let's just start, and then um, we'll, we'll, we'll go. Um, so picking it up in verse 10 of chapter one, I'm just going to skip our way through the first three chapters of first Corinthians. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you are united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. Or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. I'm going to pause. These are not doctrinal divisions. If they were doctrinal divisions, the I follow Christ group would be right. Correct? These are not doctrinal divisions. So sometimes when people you know, say, oh, I don't like the terms Calvinist or Arminian because I'm not following Peter or Paul. Yeah, those are just shorthand for doctrinal beliefs. And... 
These are personality cults. We'll see that clearly. These are ministry-style cults. These are the, the way clicks over the way people do things. And, of course, you've got the really super spiritual, I follow, I'm of Jesus. I'm out of any. Now, Paul lumps it in there, so you've got to do something with who those people are. You know what I mean? And so there are these groups. And division is going to be the besetting issue in the Corinthians. When you get to the issue on spiritual gifts, what's going on? The tongues people are like, we're super spiritual. And the prophecy people are like, no, we're not. And there's all these divisions. And we write about the divisions at the Lord's Supper. But he's going to start with him and Apollos. And so him and Apollos, he, him, he, him. I did it, didn't I, Mom? Oh, dear. If I ever got he and him mixed up, she'd say what she just said. Him's done it. Him's done it good. Okay. It's he and Apollos. I'll tell you, you remember that. and It sticks with you and haunts you. Um, <laughs> so it starts out with he and Apollos. Um, and look at verse 17. And the phrase he's going to pick up on that differentiates he and Apollos it differentiates him. Okay. I'm all, now I'm second-guessing myself. Uh, is words of wisdom. Sophia Lagos. Uh, the word Sophia is what we get the word philosophy from. Right? Philosophia is someone who loves will it, wisdom or knowledge. Sophia means knowledge. My daughter is named knowledge or wisdom. And so- Sophia Lagos um, would be... Uh, no, Sophia, philosophy. Philo. Brotherly love, Sophia, lover of wisdom. So you're going to see it first show up in um, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's, that's the phrase that Paul is going to jump on. That's the distinction the Corinthians are making between Apollos and Paul. Apollos speaks with eloquent wisdom. Paul doesn't. Paulo speaks with Sophia Lagos. Paul doesn't, and Paul will readily admit as much. For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God, right? Um, now go to chapter 2, because he's going to argue for the rest of chapter 1. <laughs> the gospel is a foolish message. You didn't get saved because the gospel is so sophisticated. You got saved because it's the power of God to those who are called and chosen. Chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech of wisdom. There it is again. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. Same phrase again, Sophia Lagos. But in a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. So when Paul first showed up to Corinth and planted the church and evangelized the church, he's saying, I wasn't eloquent. I was trembling. Um, I was not Sophia. I was not smooth. Um, I was not a great speaker. Now, he doesn't deny that he has wisdom to impart. Verse 6, yet among the mature, we impart wisdom. and goes on. But it's not the wisdom of human oratory skills. It's the wisdom that comes from God and his spirit. So then, um, pick it up in 3. He's still having the same discussion. 
And sometimes when you go through these books so slowly, you can miss the forest for the trees. But he's really having this long discussion with these factions. And the, and the reason, now he's finally going to address the, the false assumption in their factions. Well, what they're thinking is that's wrong underlying it. But, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, if you're not ready for it. For even now you are not yet ready, if you're still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the flesh? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now, Paul has no beef with Apollos. Apollos is naturally, he's trained, it comes naturally, it's not fake, it's not put on, he's a good speaker. Paul is not going to say, Apollos needs to stop that. He's just saying it doesn't matter. And the fact that you guys value that is what demonstrates your immaturity and your carnality. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. In the context, what does planting and watering refer to? So Paul says, I planted. What's that correspond to? Specifically, the evangelism. He planted the church. He was, he, was the, he was the first guy to show up with the gospel. And Apollos' watering is his continued ministry. So Paul was the evangelist church planner, and Apollos is the pastor teacher currently. Those are the two functions. Who, who, who made things grow, though? God. And what he's saying is, in this rebuke, is that the temptation is to think, because Apollos, this church is growing the way it does, because Apollos is such a good speaker. Man. And we don't want Paul here, because, man, if Paul showed up with his stammering and his, <laughs> he's not a very good speaker, the church should be shrinking. Um. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Um, so what Paul is saying is, is the danger is to, to attribute the growth to the sophistication, the delivery, the the oratory of the speaker. And modern equivalents could be, man, this guy tells the best stories. Again, if that's, I'm not saying that's good or that's bad. It's unimportant. It's, it's beside the point. Um, it's, is this person rightly opening up the Bible? So my conviction, what I got convicted of when I was a couple of years ago, you know, 15 years ago, so at Grace, was an inward conversation, something like this. Jeremy, do you have any actual complaint about this person's teaching, their life, their family, their doctrine? No. Do you have any question about them being qualified as an elder of this church? No. Do you believe it's the Holy Spirit who gifts churches with elders? Yes, I do. So the Holy Spirit has gifted this person to this church as an elder. Yes. But you aren't sure you want to show up because you don't like the, the twang in his voice. Then you start thinking with the Israelites standing in the Middle East in the hot sun while Moses read the law to them, which minimum means Deuteronomy, possibly all five books of the Pentateuch. Then they'd have the priests go out and explain what it meant. 
And I'm sitting in an air-conditioned room, in a comfortable seat. But this guy's talking with a southern drawl, and it puts me to sleep. Uh, and I'm like, maybe I just need to suck it up and man up. you know. And, it's realized, and so we started going very faithfully, whether MacArthur was there or not. No, but seriously, about, if, when MacArthur wasn't in the pulpit, about 4,000 less people will show up at Grace Community Church on Sunday. And MacArthur is useful and is great. If we're going to thank God for John MacArthur or other people, it's for their faithfulness in ministry. They don't make things grow. Paul makes it clear there is a standard of measurement. It's their faithfulness, right? Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. So you can be thankful this person, Joel, labored faithfully for many years. Joel didn't make anything grow. God made things grow. I, I don't make things grow. We, we, you can say we're faithful or unfaithful laborers, and there's going to be a judgment and a reward on that basis. Moses, Noah was a preacher of righteousness for decades. At most, his sons and their wives converted, and his wife. He was faithful. He, he, I believe he's going to pass that judgment. Well done, faithful, but, but not much growth. Yeah, that's not up to you. So, where I'm trying to get back to practically with our time is don't be distracted when you're trying to evaluate a teacher. Like false teachers are usually very charismatic. They don't generally show up with curly mustaches. They generally are super nice. And usually they've got a lot of truth mixed in with some error. And I'll hear people say, this was, this was the excuses I got. Okay, do we have time? We got like two minutes, I'll be quick. When I first came here, I went to a local youth conference. Another, this is the Sunday morning of not naming things. I'm not going to name. And I was discouraged and distraught by the, one of the, the, the main speaker they brought in. He was quoting some guys who I was very, why are you quoting Rob Bell? What's going on? And some of the things he taught, huh? and we're not good enough onto that. And when I spoke to the director, um, I went out to lunch with the director who picked the speakers, and I was saying, why... And his response was, yeah, but this guy speaks to the kids like nobody else. He's, he gets the attention of that kid in the back or on the back seat. Because we were talking about some future speakers, and I was trying to make some suggestions of people you could consider. And he flat out just said to me, Jeremy, you've got 51 weeks a year with these kids to teach them. I want to get their attention. I care about a speaker who's going to speak their language, who's going to get that kid in the back row to put down his phone and pay attention. And I said, okay, I think I get it. You want the Apollos's, right? And you don't want Paul's. And he knew what I was getting at. He said, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I said, okay, how not? You, you want the guy who's got the rhetorical ability, the speaking ability. You're not interested. In, we're not having any discussion about content about truth. You want the guy with the speaking skill to grab that kid in the back row because Apollos makes things grow. That's what you're saying. And I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. But that was, that was one of my early experiences. That this, this, it, it appeared to me this man had put his confidence and his hope and, and what he was prioritizing for his speakers was wise words, rhetoric, examples, um, and that's the danger for us is we'll, we'll drink from bad sources because they're really, they speak to those stories, those illustrations, man, they're moving, they're touching. But I'm not saying those things are bad. Jesus opened the scripture and they marveled and their, and their hearts burned within them. Paul opened the scriptures. And so as you evaluate teachers and 
and, and speakers and books. That's the, that's the only criteria that matters. Now, if on top of that, you find somebody opens the Bible well to you and you find his illustrations gripping, well, praise God, that's wonderful. But the simple thing that matters is, are you understanding God's word better? If you are, great. And that's going to come in a lot of varieties and shapes, and there's going to be Apollos's, and there's going to be Paul's, and there's going to be Cephas's, and there's going to be all sorts of style, and that's totally something we can just do it differently, as long as that's what we're doing. Anyway, that is our time. God bless. Godspeed. Have a blessed Lord's Day.